Welcome to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast Summer Sessions. I'm Jeff Sharon, once again with you. Uh, we've got a very special uh, two-part summer session here uh, with a former basketball player at UCF whose life has had some amazing twists and turns. I'm so glad I get the chance to share this uh, story uh, with you, the fans, because it's really something that, you know, when we conducted this interview, um, it's one of the most remarkable interviews I think I've ever done in my in my in my entire life. Joining me for this show is Al Miller. Al used to play uh, for the men's basketball team at UCF. Uh, he was at UCF from 1999 to 2003, and uh, was a consistent player for UCF as uh, as the Knights point guard under Kirk Spiraw. Played with uh, a couple teams that. Um, his last full year at UCF, actually, the Knights made it to the semifinals of the Atlantic Sun tournament before losing to uh, Georgia State uh, on UCF's home floor. And um, in 2002-2003, his senior year, things turned dramatically, not just for his basketball career, but for his life. It was in January of 2003 uh, that Al was uh, arrested and the entire and was due to go to um, to go to trial in in July of that year, July of two thousand three, and then he simply disappeared. And many of us at the time, including uh, myself, you know, I was a student at the time and doing student broadcasting on the uh, on the on campus radio station, not WUCF WNSC at the time. We don't know what we didn't know what happened to him. And a lot of UCF people, a lot of folks associated with the UCF men's basketball program, a lot of people in the athletic department assume the worst because no one had any idea what had happened to him. Fast forward to a few, well, not a few, <laughs> um, to 2016. I'm hopping on the UCFsports.com message board, and I hear about uh, how Al Miller is not only alive, but doing well back home in Washington, D.C. And I thought, what an amazing story this has to be. Because, so, I, I, so I reached out to him, and I'm so thankful that he reached out back to me because um, you know, we set up an interview, and then we go two hours, basically just... Um, figuring out and filling in the blanks from 2003 to now in the life of Al Miller. And it's a remarkable story, and you're not going to want to miss this uh, at all. It's two hours. We split it up, like I said, into two parts. This is part one. Uh, you can also download part two. Make sure you listen to both because they're truly amazing. Um, and it's a, and it really is, uh, you know, I, I think towards the end you'll see it's a, it, it's a, Really great story of redemption um, for someone who um, has been through a lot, has really been through a lot, uh, and is part of the UCF family. So, uh, so without further ado, uh, here is our conversation with former UCF men's basketball player Al Miller. First, Al, I got to tell you, it's um, it's great hearing your voice, man. It's been a long time, and. Uh, I know that there's been a lot that's gone on back and forth, you know, between the last time I saw you in person, which was on the basketball floor some 
14 years ago now. And wow. uh, uh, well, I guess we'll just start by where are you right now? Where are you right this instant? I am currently in Washington, D.C., literally uh, just a few miles away from the White House. Wow. OK, so it, and I know you grew up in D.C. and, um, you know, you went to Maine Central Institute for high school. First of all, let me ask you, how does a kid from D.C. find his way down to UCF in 1999? OK, well, I uh, at the time I was playing AAU basketball with a pretty well-known program by the name of DC Assault. We were we were nationally ranked. We were we were contenders in most of the tournaments that we played in for for pretty much my entire high school summer AAU run. But DC Assault had the number one player in the country by the name of Demar Johnson, who was getting a lot of attention, and. Through DeMar's relationship, um, we, we ended up in Maine at MCI, and the coach came to see DeMar play and actually had a chance to see me play on the same team. So from Maine, uh, I was able to to get a lot of attention from various colleges, and UCF was one of them. So um, I left D.C. my junior year to head to Maine. Um, I played at Maine my senior year of high school, um, and and that's where I started to get the, the attention of George Fernandez. In fact, Coach Fernandez, he followed me a few years prior to me heading to Maine, but um, I left D.C., went to Maine. At Maine, I chose uh, to attend UCF in the fall, and so um, George was persistent. He, he was one of the coaches that showed up at a lot of the AAU tournaments, and I'd never been to Florida as an adult, as a kid, I think I may have played in a YBOA tournament, uh, but I hadn't been to Florida. So I left Maine uh, to come down to Florida for my official visit. That was, that was, in fact, that was my first official visit uh, at UCF. And, and I believe Dante Culpepper was, was the quarterback at the time. Uh, one of my teammates took me to the football game, and I just found that that UCF was somewhat of a diamond in the rough. I thought that it had a great potential. Um, when I saw Dante play, um, I mean, the fans were extremely supportive. It was just a good environment. I kind of figured that um, it could be a good fit. So I left from Maine and chose to go to Florida. I think the weather played a major role as well. I Maine, bet. <laughs> <laughs> Maine literally snowed up to my knees, and it was pretty much um, – it was pretty much classroom basketball books. And so, you know, Florida, the palm trees, uh, and the sunshine was extremely enticing. So I decided to leave Maine and go to Florida. That's how I ended up at Central Florida. So you come to UCF as a freshman in 1999, and your first, I mean, right off the bat, you're a contributor. Uh, you're shooting, you know, 40% from the field. Um, you're, uh, you're hitting, you, you know, you, you're, you're, you're getting to the line a couple of times and you are the facilitator. You average four assists your first year, five, almost five assists your sophomore year and your junior year, the assist went down a little bit, but your but, but your playing time kind of, uh, kind of went up a little bit. Your role sort of changed with the team. So t- tell me about those first three years at UCF up to your junior year. What was it like playing for, um, Coach Spiraw and and being a part of that group. You know, you guys had like the Graham brothers and 
and uh, and a couple other guys. It was a pretty talented team back then in the Atlantic Sun, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely it was. I think my freshman year, um, just the idea that that I'd made it to the D1 level, I got the scholarship as a kid. I mean, that's always the dream, right? And so to have finally gotten one step closer to the ultimate dream, which is with become a professional athlete, uh, it just felt like I was I was close. And so uh, I was extremely excited. You know, I, I looked forward to coming in as a freshman, and they pretty much assured me that I'd get a great opportunity to start at some point. Uh, but for the most part, I, I'd be an immediate contributor. And so I was ready to go. I can recall Midnight Madness and, and just the hype behind the upcoming season. I think my freshman year was probably my best year, to be honest with you. I, I haven't gone back and looked at the numbers, but um, I, I think I was extremely confident going in. I had just left Maine, and we'd won the New England Prep School Championship. I played for a Hall of Fame coach in Max Good, who went on to coach at uh, UNLV. I think he was the head assistant at UNLV, if I'm not mistaken. He ended up getting the head coaching job at Loyola out in Los Angeles. Um, he bounced around a bit, but Max was Max was a, was an extremely uh, aggressive, passionate, no nonsense type of coach. Um, so leaving Max good and 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 the winning the winning ways from from Maine Central Institute to DC Assault, even in my high school years, uh, we we were contenders uh, for the majority of my high school experience. So. Getting to UCF was amazing. It was a great experience. And then the the culture shock of not winning as much started to sink in. I can't recall how far we got during my freshman season, but I, I, I venture to say that we weren't top contenders. We may have gotten two or three games into the, uh, to the conference playoffs, but we definitely fell short of the NCAA tournament. So uh, that, that was a letdown. The so yeah, I looked at your freshman year, ninety nine two thousand. The team went fourteen and eighteen. Was tied for actually finished with a winning record in the A Sun, but was tied for fifth in the league. Okay. Your, your sophomore year, eight and twenty three, three and fifteen. It was a tough year. Um, then you then you guys rebound in two thousand one two thousand two, which happened to be my freshman year on campus, and and I could sense the excitement as well because. Some things were coming together. I think the Grand Brothers were, were sophomores. You were a junior. Uh, okay. you, you guys like Ray Abelard coming in, Ed Dotson, Josh Bodden on the inside. And the team goes 17 and 12, 12 and 8 in the conference. And, you, and UCF is hosting the Atlantic Sun tournament that year. And then we okay. run into Georgia State in the semifinals. And. Okay. And that, and and you probably you probably remember this. You remember who uh, Georgia State's uh, head coach was? Lefty Drizel. Lefty Drizel. That's right. And that was a good team that they had back then. And um, how good how good was the A Sun back in that? I think we I think we kind of forget about it, you know. But that was a really competitive league when we were in it. It, it was, you know, um, Georgia State. That's I remember is it Jackson State? Is it Jackson? Jacksonville State. State. State? Yeah. Sure. Those, I mean, it was a competitive league. I'd say that although it's, you know, it wasn't a league that was necessarily aired all across the country, for what it was worth, 
Um, it was extremely competitive amongst the league, and you couldn't take anybody for granted. I think Georgia State may have been atop the league for for those few years that I was around. Mm-hmm. But on any given night, you know, your Stetsons, your Jacksonville States, your Georgia States, of course, UCF, um, if you if – you, oh, Belmont. Was Belmont in the A's? Belmont, like yeah, they were good at that time too, yeah. Belmont. And, tr- and Troy State was good too. They had Don Maestri, and they scored a ton of points, man. That's Troy State, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, the, the league was the league was 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 competitive for what it was worth. I, I I enjoyed the time there. And if you came, if you came on the road or or had a visitor coming into your home and you and you weren't prepared, then you were going to take a loss for sure. Yeah. So now we head to your senior year. It's two thousand two, two thousand three. Some things have changed in the program. The the Grand Brothers had left. They left for Oklahoma State, uh, and it was, I, think, I think it was uh, uh, Joey Graham. Eventually, was a, I think it was a lottery pick from, from, uh, from Oklahoma State at the time. Steven left to go with him. So it was a different kind of team, but things started to turn the corner before, you know, leading up to the start of conference play. Um, the te- tell me about the t- that team in your senior year leading up to New Year's Day. Because there, you guys have picked up some pretty big, uh, some pretty big wins. I think there was that um, uh, College of Charleston came in. I think when they were ranked, and that was the first time that UCF had defeated a ranked team uh, because they had just won. I think the the tournament up in Alaska or something like that. And you guys are coming in, and things are looking are looking up at that point. What tell tell me where you are in your life at that point? Okay, so let's let's go let's go back to my junior year when we had the Grand Brothers. I think the Grand Brothers, Ed Dotson, Josh Barton, I'm not sure if Roberto was there at the time, but we had a, a pretty good energy going on and we were excited about where the program was headed. When Joey and those guys left, when Joey and Steven left, um, those were like my little brothers and, and I was disappointed that that they moved on, but I understood what their family was trying to do. I, I think it was the best move for them at the time. It, 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 it showed to be um, a good a good choice for those guys. But when I lost those guys, uh, I believe Ray Abelard. Did Ray play with Joey, or was he the yeah. following year? Yeah, yeah, Ray came in, and in 0203, he was a senior along with you. I think the seniors were you, Ed, uh, Ed Dotson, uh, Marius Boyd, and, and yeah, that was the senior class. Okay. It's a blur. It's a blur, I mean, in terms of the different years because it's been nearly 14 or 15 years, Jeff. But right. when I think back to those guys and those personalities, I would say uh, I would say that we were extremely excited with our core group, Ed Dodson, Ray Abelard, who was, who was one of my favorite players. Uh, Marius Boyd was tough. Losing Joey and Steven took some win out of us, but we got some wins. Uh, I, I think we put together a pretty – a pretty solid start to my senior year. Uh, but when you ask me where was I mentally, I knew each each year as a as a college athlete, your freshman year you think that it'll last forever, and you get through that first year and you realize, okay, I'm a sophomore, you're familiar with the routine and campus and um, just being a student athlete. And so you get familiar, and then the next thing you know, you look up and you're a junior and you're halfway out. I mean, it's almost over. So my junior year, 
I, I, I can't recall what our record was, but uh, with the exception of my freshman year, I felt most of our seasons didn't go as well as planned, and a few of them were just bad. So the summer going into my senior year, I really just wanted to buckle down, get in the gym, get my shots up. I knew how important that that going into my senior year, that summer was was life or death for me if I wanted to get overseas and get a decent job. I never thought about life after sports. And so basketball was really the one thing that I'd invested in my entire life. So when you ask me what was my mindset going into my senior year, it was that I was going to work my butt off harder than I'd ever worked before and that and that uh, I was going to trust that things would, would turn out favorable. And so um, that's how I would answer my the question to what was my mindset going into my senior year. Through the first 12 games – oh, you still there? I'm here. Okay, good. Sorry about that. Um, through, the, through the first 12 games, you guys were 8-4 and four. – you had the win over over Charleston, um, there, which was they were a top twenty five. They were twenty fifth in the country. That was the first time we'd ever beaten a top twenty five team. We had some other wins. We had a, a win at Tulane in Conference USA at the time. Um, mm-hmm. Tough game I remember against Miami at home, where we lost by uh, lost by eleven. But that game was closer than that. Um, yeah. And then and then your final game was against Citadel, a sixty four fifty five win. At that point. You are the team is eight and four, and we're running the offense basically through you. You're averaging five point eight points a game, now one point nine assists per game, which was down from usual. But we were asking you to pick up a little bit more of the scoring load at that point. But uh, mm-hmm. but we're thinking as we're heading into conference play. Okay, we got our pieces set. I think we're going to be. All, I remember at that time thinking, okay, even though we lost the Graham brothers, we've got a pretty good team, and this is a pretty talented squad. And then. This is what I rem- this is what I remember happening. We came back from New Year's, and our first game after New Year's Day was on January the fourth against Florida Atlantic. It was our conference opener at home, and I, you, and uh, Chris Showak was the SID there, and and he came over to me as we're preparing to broadcast the game on the student radio station. He says, "Hey guys, listen, got a heads up for you. Al Miller is suspended indefinitely." And that's all I can say right now. And so I was like, huh, all right, this is, this is kind of a little weird. I wish I had more information, but I couldn't find out anything. Everyone was very tight-lipped about it. So tell me what happened on the evening of, I think it was January the 2nd, 2003. Okay, well, first and foremost, let me say, I'll take this opportunity to say, let me acknowledge my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? At this point in my life, God had been trying to get my attention for a very long time. Uh, Far before I got to UCF during my high school days, um, even as a young kid, uh, I'd experienced some challenging times within my family, uh, losing close close loved ones and um, kids that I grew up with. And I just wanted to do it my way, right? And, and, And up to that point, it had pretty much worked out for me, but... Uh, this was the breaking point uh, that would that would essentially uh, take my life in a different direction. So to answer your question, I can't recall exactly what the date was, but I had a, a party promoter ask me if I would be willing to put my face on a flyer to promote 
a party that he was hosting. Uh, he, he'd offered me a few dollars and told me that out. It's really no work. We're just going to put your face on the flyer. Uh, feel free to pass some flyers out to some students on campus and some young ladies. And, and we just wanted to fill up the party. The goal was to fill up the party. I do recall us leaving from an away trip. I think we came back home uh, to UCF and we had a day off before practice or the next game, whatever the case may be. And so it was an opportune moment for me to get out on the town uh, and, and pass out some flyers. And so I called a dear friend of mine, one of my, one of my favorite teammates, uh, Baronte Sims. And rest in peace, Baronte Sims, as I think of the interview. Uh, in fact, are you familiar with Baronte? I, I remember uh, him. I remember him vaguely. I do remember Baronte. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Baronte and I, uh, I think I went to pick Baronte up and we headed downtown uh, Orlando. I can't remember the name of the, the nightclub, but the goal was we were going to head out uh, and have a night in the town. We were going to pass out some flies and just enjoy ourselves the way we normally would at the nightclub. Um, I can recall my girlfriend at the time telling me, Al, you should stay home. You know, you, you should you should stay in. Let's let's watch a movie and have something to eat. And I just felt I, I just had a I had a I had an inkling to get out. I just felt like getting out. And so uh, that's what that's what happened. We went out, we went into the nightclub. Um during the nightclub uh, an altercation ensued and I take full responsibility for the action. So uh, for the sake of those involved, I won't get into all of the details, but I will say that for the most part, um, what the media advertises happening did happen. You know, I did not, uh, and watching the news, so I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward and come back for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was arrested. I was charged with armed robbery with a firearm, um, and at the time I had no idea what the law was. Um, I was 21 years old at the time, and when it was brought to my attention that the armed robbery with a firearm charge carried a minimum of uh, 10 years day for day, um, then, then, then reality started to sink in, and so I honestly thought it was a joke initially. Initially, I thought the police were just, <clears throat> excuse me, um, were just selling me whatever they wanted to sell me at the time. But um, after hiring a lawyer uh, and, and and really getting to the nitty gritty of what I was up against, I learned that the the charge that I was accused of. Uh, had indeed carried 10 years. And so um, reality sunk in very quickly. So one night I am the captain of the UCF men's basketball program. I've never had any history uh, in terms of being arrested. And the very next night after one decision, uh, you know, life had changed totally. So uh, I want to say I was released a couple days thereafter. I was I was I was released out on bond, and uh, things started to slow down for me. 
things started to slow down immediately. I had a lot of time to sit and think about my choices and what led me up to that point. Uh, I can recall watching the news. My roommate, a good friend of mine, uh, he called me out into the living room and he said, Al, come and watch this news um, advertisement. And so the news came on and they told the story of what 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 had went on um, the night of the club. And all of the details weren't accurate. I think I can recall them saying that I, I followed a guy through an ATM machine or something along those lines. That That's not true. But the fact remains that I was an aggressor. I did, uh, I did approach a guy, and I did take something off of the guy um, in, in an aggressive manner. And so, as I, as I said earlier, I was definitely guilty of what I was accused of. Um, and so, at 21 years old, um, I was thinking that it would be a smack on the wrist and that somehow, some way, uh, my resources or finances would be able to fix the situation. As I mentioned to you when we started to turn towards this piece of conversation, mm -hmm. um, God had been trying to get my attention for a long time. And oftentimes, I found that uh, if we're unwilling to to slow down and kind of heed to, to, to the signs, then at some point, um, he, he, you know, he, he, he has to he has to break us in order to get our attention. So at this point, he had my full attention. I am now a senior in college. I'm indefinitely suspended from the basketball program. Mm -hmm. I'm facing a, I'm facing double-digit years in prison, and um, I'm allowed to go to school and go to class. Um, obviously, I'm not allowed to practice or to attend any games. And and when I think back to it, I mean, you, you, you as an athlete, you you build a certain you build a certain routine. You 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 are accustomed to getting up and going through your day, knowing that you'll have practice or you'll have workouts or you'll have a game. And and I think many athletes, not just myself, but I think many of us experience um, identity crisis outside of basketball. Like mm -hmm. basketball often defines the athlete, and so it takes a while. Even for the professional athlete, I'd like to believe when when the reality that the sport is coming to an end and that your career is closing, you kind of have to find yourself. So, Jeff, this was probably the start to me finding uh, my true self and who Alfred Miller really was. And so, uh, so that was the beginning of it all. That was the very beginning of it all. Here's where, so, all right, so we have, so at, to that point, um, you know, you, basketball is out of your life at that point. Here's where, from for those of us on the outside who didn't know what was going on, here's where things started to get weird and where we all started to really get worried. Um, this is a story from, uh, I actually have in front of me right here, a story by Alan Schmadke of the Orlando Sentinel. He was our beat writer at the time. It's dated... July 26, 2003. Um, and it says, I mean, I'm not going to read the whole article, but um, it says that on uh, July 4th, the UCF had gone through the season, um, had lost through, uh, in the meantime, UCF had lost in the, in the Atlantic Sun Championship game. You had not returned from the team. Um, now, fast forward to July. Uh, on 
let's see. I'm, I'm actually going back through here. Um, okay. So your lawyer at the time was an attorney named Kelly Sims. And Kelly recounts the story here to, uh, uh, to Alan Schmatke that um, he had discovered on January, or excuse me, on July the 10th that you were missing and that you're, uh, at the time you were wearing a confinement bracelet, that had been cut off apparently on July the 4th and a warrant was put out um, for your arrest at the time. Your trial was scheduled to begin on July the 17th. Um, that at that and, and the quotes for everybody are like Coach Spiroff, for example, says in the story, quote, I'm worried about him. This is unlike Al. This is way out of character for him. And frankly, all of us were because we didn't know what happened. Um, one other person recounted uh, in, uh, in a story that I read actually on the message board. Um, I can tell you that at the time, you know, the entire UCF athletic department thought Al may be dead. When his apartment was searched, they found the broken ankle monitor and a wallet full of cash and his car keys. Everyone thought someone took him. So now, so now here's your chance to tell us what actually happened. So what happened in July of that year? I had met with my attorney on several different occasions. I mean, we were, we were preparing to go to trial, and we were up against a brick wall, and one of the last meetings that I had with, with Kelly Sims, uh, I'd asked Kelly, is there any way for me to get a deal less than the 10-year deal that was on the table? And Kelly told, told me that, Al, I wish that I could tell you there was, but unfortunately there isn't. And so at 21 years old, I sat still and I thought about what that meant in the event that I took a 10-year deal. Uh, 21, I would be released at 31. At that time, I don't know how old you are, Jeff, but to a 21-year-old, 31 is a lifetime. Yeah. Right? I'm in my prime, and I feel like there's so much life ahead of me. And at that point, I honestly was not ready to accept full responsibility for my actions. I thought that I would rather move on with with life as I knew it uh, than to sit in a prison cell until I was 31 years old. And so if I would have taken the case to trial, then I could have faced up to 15 or 20 years. And so at that time, I had to make a decision. And without anybody knowing, I decided that, you know what, I would prefer to figure it out and live life as it comes to me, rather than sit still and and pay my debt. And so that's what happened. In July or whatever year it was, whatever month it was, was that 2002 or 03? Uh, July of 03. Okay. So in July of 03, I decided that I, I, I wasn't ready to go to court. I wasn't prepared to go to court. And um, I had several reasons. I can go down a list of reasons, but ultimately... I was fearful of losing 10 years of my life uh, or more, right? Mm. And so that was the beginning of my new life. I heard the rumors that uh, they thought I was dead. I, 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 uh, I'd gone out of the country. I heard all types of different rumors. But I was very much alive. 
I was very much uh, on the potter's wheel, and 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 I think God was was working on me. He was trying to get my attention from that moment on, and it lasted for nearly ten years. And there's so many different directions of the conversation that we can go in during that course of the ten years. Uh, but ultimately, um, from from July 2003 to June. 13th, 2012, which is roughly 10 years. Wow. I lived with the, I lived with the warrant for my arrest, um, which was, which was probably the most educating, humbling, um, challenging time of my life. In the earlier stages, it, it felt impossible. Um, and I didn't know, I didn't know what I would do. I just trusted that there was a purpose on my life and that God was trying to get my attention. And I, I had faith that one way or another we would pull through it. I think while we're talking about sports, I think the advantage of the, the athlete um, versus someone who may not have pushed themselves to the limit is that those suicides and those weight those weightlifting days where where your, your training coach is pushing you to the limit, it transfers over into life. Uh, there's so many different um, – different life skills or characteristics that you can take from whatever sport um, that you're involved in into life with you. And so I just knew that I wasn't a quitter. I knew that somewhere in me was a champion and I couldn't lay down. And so um, I made one bad decision the night that I went out to the club. Some would say I made a second bad decision the night I chose to not go to court. Um, the way the story would play out, today I, I beg to differ. I think that I, I, I made choices as they came, and perhaps if I would have, if I would have had to do it all over again, um, I would have, I would have, I don't know if I would have done anything different, to be honest with you. Hmm. Um, I don't know if I would have done anything different. The way the universe worked, um, the judges and the district attorney who was on my case at the time, it was just a season. It, it, it was a season in. Florida. Um, it was a season, uh, perhaps in, in, in amongst the country, with the criminal justice system, where I would have gotten uh, probably made an example for for the decision that I made uh, when I sat down with my attorney later on. Uh, so I mentioned in June 2012, uh, life had gotten me to a place where the things that I thought were important during that 10-year warrant season, uh, I'd accomplished it. I was able to to build a pretty good life for myself under the circumstances. And the things that I thought were important, um, I realized there was so much more to life than what I was able to tap into under those circumstances. So uh, without all of the details, uh, I'll save that for the book. I'm currently finishing up a book. And in the book, you'll get all of the details to everything that I went through um, in its rawest form. But it took me 10 years to get to a place where I said, you know what? Um, in order for me to tap into the purpose that I feel like I've always um, was called to, I have to go back to Florida and fix my life. I can't continue to live under the circumstances and never reach my full potential. And so... The very place that I ran from in 2003, I literally walked back into the doors of Orange County 
uh, 33rd jail in June 2012. Hmm. And I turned myself in, I surrendered. So uh, once I got the revelation, several things in my life led me up to deciding that now is the time. And and when I made that decision, I reached back out to Kelly Sims, the same attorney who was on my case in 2002. Hmm. And I said to him, Kelly, uh, I want to come back. I need to come back. And I said, tell me whatever I need to do to get you squared away so that you can open up the old case and, and let's get it done. And so um, it was time. I think in life, it, it, while, while a lot of the story um, stems from basketball, I think that um, my, my, my experience speaks to not just athletes, but it speaks to anybody who is in the face of fear and who may be hesitant or unsure or timid when it comes to what appears to be an extreme challenge, right? I think whether you work in corporate America, whether you, no matter what you do, no matter whether you're young or old, I think at some point we all face fear. Um, Oftentimes fear can paralyze us. In my case, it paralyzed me for roughly 10 years. And then at some point I just figured I got into a place where I was tired of being tired, and I knew that I had to take my life by the horns if I ever wanted to make my life mean something more uh, than what I was experiencing at the time. So um, it took me jumping off the cliff and returning back to Florida to turn myself in. Um, And this was the start of, uh, I guess, me regaining my life back. Yeah. So... And I want to. I don't want to talk about you know what happened after after you fake came back and you faced the music, in a second. But I just have a quick uh, one quick question about that nine year period because there's a lot of stuff that's out there. I don't know how much of it's true. So so for that so for that nine years from 2003 to 2012, you don't you don't have to go into very much detail. But where were you and what were you, and and what were you doing at the time? I left from Florida. And I made my way, so I made my way to Charlotte, North Carolina. I had a professional friend of mine who was playing um, in the NBA at the time. And so, thankfully, I had, I had people who loved and cared for me dearly um, who, who, wanted, who wanted to see me do well and who wanted to, to the best of their ability, help me out. And so... Um, I, I for, the, for the beginning of those few months that I've left, I, I pretty much spent time around my closest friends who were in a position um, to open doors without, without feeling like they were jeopardizing their own lives and families. And so my loved ones took me in. Um, uh, at the time, I was hesitant to go back home to my family because I thought that that was too close to um, where the authorities would would reach out to. And so I leaned on the people who knew me since I was younger and the people who knew me outside of the the, the mistake that I most recently made. So I started out in Charlotte and I sat in Charlotte for a while. And, you know, at this time it was a deep depression. I don't know how familiar you are with depression, but Mm. um, it was extremely humbling, my friend. Um, I realized that that at 21, I made a decision that would affect my life for many years. At that time, I was thinking for a lifetime because to think that I would get to a place where I was 
was willing to go back and turn myself in at 21. I didn't see that. I didn't know that man. Yeah. I didn't know that man at all. And so, um, I, I, I sat in Charlotte and the Carolinas for a while. I went up to Atlanta for a while. I went to New York. Um, I went to California and then I found my way back home. So I ended up getting back to DC roughly a year and a half to two years later. And um, I got a chance to see my family, many of which outside of my immediately uh, immediate family, rather. Um, if you weren't in the basketball community and I didn't share the information, me being from up north, um, you know, it wasn't heavily publicized in my region. Mm-hmm. It was more so a down south um familiarity so if i didn't share it and you weren't a part of the basketball community it became my dark secret so everybody didn't know you know and so i I carried that around for a great deal of time and it became it became normal you know in many ways i started to live a lie i created up who i wanted myself to be despite my past and I, i i put my clothes on i went out the door in the morning, and I, I lived under these circumstances as if this was what I had to do, you know. And several things show show favorable. I can't even explain to you how, even in the midst of this dark situation, um, God kept me, and I didn't get in any trouble during those ten years. Um, I was very close to it. Uh, in fact, I was in several near-death situations, and I walked away unscathed. And so I had always had faith that there's a purpose and a reason why I am where I am today, but it's not the end of the story. And so uh, in the early stages, I really didn't want to go into the basketball gym. I kind of wanted to stay, even as close as I was to some guys who were playing professional, I didn't care to be around the sport. It almost reminded me of... Um, it reminded me of my past. It just, it just, it, it was a mirror of um, the dream that I would never get to, and that was tough to look at. And so, uh, most of my friends or, or loved ones at that time were either athletes or, um, or from the community that I grew up with, mm-hmm. and 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 they were living a lifestyle that most most guys in the inner city live, which was one that I did not feel comfortable with 100%. I knew that my life experiences had had, had gotten me to a place where I was capable of so much more. However, with the warrant for my arrest, it landed me at the very place where um, I dreamed of getting out of. So those were the decisions that I was up against. Either I spent time with my, 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 my... my athlete friends, and they remind me, not verbally, but just through waking up and doing what they love to do, they remind me of, 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 of the choices that I made. Or I take a different path, and I go back into a world that's, that's dark and dim. Um, and so in those early stages, I was really trying to find my way. I did not know um, exactly how I was going to get to the place where I am today. And in many ways, you just have to walk it out. And trust and trust that it'll all pan out. So, um, 
I'll let you ask another question and I'll go from there. Okay. So 2012, you decide you're going to come back, you're going to face the music. What was the turning point that made that led up to you making that decision? Like, you know, who was it that you spoke to that said, you know, I, I'm going to do this? And then, and then take me through that process. And then when you finally did get out, what happened from there? Okay, so around 2006, 2007, I think it was 06. It may have even been 05. Um, I met a young lady who I was dating, and she was in medical school. And we'd actually gone to junior high school together, and I hadn't seen her since I left that particular school. It was around that the ninth grade when I left the school. And I bumped into her. We started to hang out. This became the lady that I that I dated. And while she was in medical school, God continued to put people in my life to show me that, um, that there's more to life than what I was doing. So I watched this young lady get up. I watched her work crazy hours. Prior to her residency, I just watched her go through med school and and study and study and study and get up and cry. And her, 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 her hours were ridiculous, but she had a goal in mind. And so at this point I was doing, I was doing the best I knew how, but I was doing fairly well under the circumstances. And, and God placed this woman in my life, um, who, who initially did not know my situation. Um, and so at a certain point, I think we dated for roughly a year and a half, almost two years, and she became my best friend. And one day she asked me, Al, uh, what do you think about getting married? And I said to myself, uh, absolutely not. How, how could I possibly uh, with the warrant for my arrest? And And I told her that I would talked to her when I got back into town, but I wanted to share a secret that I had been holding on to, and and I would share it with her when I got home. And so I kind of held back my secret for several different reasons. Most importantly, I was fearful that if a person knew my truth or the mistake that I'd made in the past, they'd never get to know the real me. And so oftentimes I, I was concerned with how people would perceive me or judgment, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I knew that because this had become one of my closest friends, it was now time for me to have the conversation with her. So when you asked me what led me up to making that decision, uh, I got back into town. I stopped by to sit her down and share with her my deep, dark secret. And when I told her about my secret, she hugged me. She embraced me. She said, I'm disappointed um, that you didn't share this with me earlier, but I love you. I'm here with you. We can get through this. Um, and so at that point, once I shared that with her and she embraced me, um, just because of the, the, the road that she was headed down, I knew that I couldn't live like this forever. Um, if I wanted to be a part of her life, um, the way that we were 
um, connected at the time. And so I started to get a glimpse then, but I still was nowhere near prepared to go back to Florida. So as I mentioned, that was around, uh, I think, 07, 08 maybe, mm-hmm. where I first kind of got a glimpse that, okay, I, I'm not going to be able to do this forever if I want healthy relationships, right? I kept so much to myself that uh, while my relationships perhaps made me feel some sort of comfort, I couldn't be the best friend to the people who were confiding and trusting in me. So that's the relationship that would eventually push me um, to saying, you know what, it's time for me to go back. Um, I lost my grandmother. That was one of my fears um, in 2002 or 2003 when I had originally gotten in trouble, that if I would have sat down for 10 years, uh, my grand, my grandmother, my grandfather, um, I would have lost some very important people to me. And I, at that age, I just wasn't ready to, to, to deal with that reality. And so um, I buried my grandmother in 2010, and I'm glad that I was able to spend that time with my grandmother. My grandmother raised me. I didn't tell you anything about my, my upbringing, but, um, you know, it's, 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 it's no different story than, than you hear, um, you know, in, in, in most inner cities. Yeah. Uh, throughout the United States, right? My dad was murdered when I was 12. Um, my mom went to prison and did seven years, who is now the most amazing woman in the world. Um, her story and her strength is second to none. And she inspired me and encouraged me to go and take my life back. So um, when I was young, both parents were taken from me at a very young age, and my grandmother raised me. And so in losing my grandmother in 2010, um, I sat next to her on her deathbed, and she said, son, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely pleased with the man that you've become. I'll tell you who my grandmother was. My grandmother was an extremely wise woman, and I called her. She was the first phone call I made um, from the Orange County Jail when I was originally arrested. Like, literally, the night of or the next day, the first call I made was to my grandmother, and I said, Grandma, I messed up. I made a horrible decision, and I'm in jail. And my grandmother said, son, you'll be all right. She said, um, this is a choice you made. It's not who you are. She said, deal with it. And, and at the end of the day, you'll come out on top. And so I didn't, I didn't uh, reach out to anyone when I decided to make the decision to, to not go to court. But when I found my way back to D.C., and I was able to sit in front of my grandmother for the first time since I got in trouble or I called her from the county jail. Um, my grandmother looked at me and she says, son, are you okay? And I said, yeah, grandma, I'm okay. And she said, okay, you know you're going to have to fix this one day. And I said, yes. And she never asked me another day when or what I was going to do until she was on her deathbed. And she ended up dying of stomach cancer, but I was able to sit next to her. I was able to, to kind of nurse her and, um, and kind of be on call for her when she needed me most. And as she was taking one of her last breaths, my grandmother said to me, son, I'm proud of who you've become. You're a great man. There's two things I want you to do. I want you to make sure that your little cousin, I'm an only child, but I grew up with um, several cousins in my family. And my grandmother raised us all. She said, I want you to make sure that the younger cousins are taken care of and that they 
get the tools that they need to be successful. And I want you to take, take responsibility to seeing that that happens. And she also said to me, um, I want you to go back to Florida and fix your situation. Now, this was in this. She, I buried her in August of 2010. This may have been the end of July or it could have been August, just a few days before she passed away. And those was the last words she said. After she said that, I think the next morning she stopped talking. She was breathing, but she stopped speaking to us, and she died a few days later. So um, when you ask me what led me to to turn myself in and go back to Florida, there was three things. Um, it was the close relationships that I had um, and the people that showed me that there's there's a purpose to the life that we live and that I did not want to go to my grave thinking I could have, I, I should have, or I would have done so much more if I went back to fix my life. That was unacceptable. That wasn't an option. The second thing was um, purpose and just feeling like I know that there's more to my life than what I'm living at the moment. And I know that I'm capable of doing so much more than what I'm doing at the moment. And then lastly, just my faith in God. I felt like God had kept me through so much that he could bring me through uh, what appeared to be an impossible situation. And he's the, he's, the, he's the master of making the impossible possible. So um, at a certain point, I just had to jump off the cliff, Jeff. And jumping off the cliff for me looked like I, I booked a plane ticket from, from Baltimore, Washington International Airport, BWI, to Orlando. Um, prior to that, though, um, in, in, in complete transparency, mm. um, in my communications with Kelly, we were trying to get me a deal where I knew what I would turn myself in for. Like, it was a certain amount of time um, that I would be willing to do. And so, I mean, I knew I, I walked away from 10 years, so the deal on the table wouldn't be anything less than that. The fact that I walked away... Um, is an additional charge. And so it was an impossible situation. I mean, when I tell you I was up against a mountain that really showed no glimpse of sunlight, uh, it just was a matter of hope and faith and me doing what I felt like I had to do to right my wrong. And so Kelly had originally reached out to the state to figure out, okay, what can we do? This, this guy's ready to return and pay his debt. Um, what's the, what's the deal on the table? Um, is there a deal? And if so, uh, you know, my client is willing to come back and turn himself in. So in the earliest stages of me, you know, reaching out to Kelly and, and Kelly doing the research to figure out what we were now up against, originally Kelly told me, give me, give me a couple of months and I'll have some information for you. A couple of months turns to almost six months. At six months, um, at this point I'm committed to fixing my life, so the life that I knew was, was, was no more. It was in shambles, and I knew that it was just a ticking uh, a ticking clock before I had to go back and fix it. So one day I reached out to Kelly, and I said, Kelly, I'm ready to go. Like, what's going on? These people haven't gotten to us yet. What, what, what's, what's the deal? And Kelly said to me, Al, if you're serious about coming back to turn yourself in, I think at this point it's a situation where you're just going to have to be willing to, to jump off the cliff and without a deal. And so you come in, you turn yourself in, we'll walk you into the county jail, 
and you'll you'll sit for several months. He told me expect to sit for roughly five or six months as I as I do my job. And Kelly told me, Al, you know I love you to death. I'm proud of the man that you've grown up to become, and I work for you as if you were my 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 son. And I'm hopeful that you know in you doing the right thing. This is the best chance that you have for leniency. And and so I thought Kelly was crazy initially. Uh, and I'd actually reached out to two other lawyers just to confirm what he was saying made sense. Um, at this point, my trust issues were, were, were extremely uh, high. And so I, I, I'd grown familiar with dealing with attorneys and, um, and just the money, just, just, the, just the, the goal to reach financial gain by any means necessary. And so I was hesitant to just give my money away, not knowing whether or not it would be worth it. So I reached out to, to, to two other attorneys who I respected and had developed great relationships with over the years just to double-check that this made sense. And so I told myself at this point, if both of these attorneys tell me, Al, we feel as though this is the best opportunity for you to, to, drink, to get leniency, to turn yourself in and to to get your life back, um, then I was willing to, 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 to turn myself in after that point. So um, I reached out to both attorneys, and um, the first one said, Al, based on everything that you shared with me through the years, um, based on the details of the case, I think that I agree. The best chance that you have at any sort of leniency um, is if you were to turn yourself in and show yourself remorseful. Um, the second attorney agreed, and he said the same thing. So at that point, I was just days away from deciding to book a, a plane ticket back to Orlando. Yeah. So that's kind of that's kind of what led up to me getting on the plane and turning myself in. So you hop on the plane from BWI to to Orlando. You go in with yeah. Kelly. You get booked and you start and you start facing the music. You start serving the time that you had to that you had to serve. How long did you serve and how did you get out? Okay, let's 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 take let's take it a bit backwards for a second. Okay. So I get on the plane, I fly to Orlando Airport. Kelly was in court that day. Um, June twelfth was the day that I initially flew back to Florida. My lady and I checked into a hotel. Kelly was going to come in and get me from the hotel once he got out of court that day. And so my lady and I checked into the hotel, we grabbed a bite to eat and we laid down. To, uh, to take a nap. Kelly must have came to the hotel that day around 4 or 5 o'clock. And um, when he got there, the goal was for us to sit down and kind of discuss the details of what this process would look like. And as we were discussing the details of, of, of what I was walking into, at a certain point, Kelly said, Al, are you sure that this is what you want to do? There's no turning back once you walk into uh, the county jail. And I honestly had to sit and think for a second. The young lady who I was with spoke up for me, and she said, Kelly, absolutely, this is what he wants to do. And it was at that moment that I realized um, that this was about to be a lonely road, Jeff, yeah. and that there was no one other than myself that was going to 
how to, to live through what I was headed into day for day. And so um, we talked to Kelly for, for several hours, so much so that the young lady that was with me had to head back to the airport for her return flight. The goal was that we were going to walk into the county jail that particular night, or that particular evening, rather. Um, instead, the plans changed because she had to get back to the airport. So as she walked back to the airport, now this is my best friend. This is the woman who I spent a great deal of my time with, uh, you know, for probably four or five years leading up to me turning myself in. Uh, when I left her at the airport and she walked away from me, um, I got back in the truck with Kelly. And Kelly said, Al, you ready to go? And I said to Kelly, you know what? Grant me the opportunity to sleep by myself tonight, to have my last meal, and to really make sure that this is what I want to do. You know, I had I had my closest loved ones. I had my family. I, I knew what I needed to do, but I had a lot of people pulling at me. And um, I knew that once I walked in there, there was no turning back. So I went back to the hotel that we checked in that day. Uh, in fact, it was the NBA playoffs. I think Oklahoma City was playing Miami in June of 2012. It might have been the first game of the series. I watched the game, and I cut the game off, and I just thought about everything that had led me up to that point. Uh, and I knew what I needed to do, but to be, be honest with you, uh, that fear hopped on me again. And it was the toughest decision that I'd ever had to make in my life. Now, I'm now in Orlando. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not far away from the place that I would turn myself in, but I'm literally having thoughts of turning back around and continuing the life that, I, that I'd lived previously. Uh, so I shut the phone off. I kind of got with myself. I talked to God the way that I normally talk to God. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I told Kelly that I would give him a call first thing in the morning and let him know whether or not he needed to come and get me or whether or not I would go in a different direction. Um Obviously, needless to say, um, I slept that night. I woke up that morning, and I knew what I had to do. Uh, so I called Kelly to come and pick me up, and it was June 13th where I actually walked through the county jail doors and, uh, and surrendered myself. All right, that concludes part number one of our interview with Al Miller. Part number two is already up, and you can listen to it right here. Make sure you do. But in the meantime, make sure you uh, give us a follow on Twitter at UCF underscore Banneret. Look us up on Facebook and make sure you go to blackandgoldbanneret.com. So thanks once again for listening. Don't forget, part number two of our conversation with Al Miller is right here in your podcast app right now. Make sure you subscribe to us, by the way, on uh, Apple Podcasts, along with Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you here on part two of our conversation with Al Miller here on the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. <laughs>